Scripture reading today will be from three books. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down by, to those to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may be, know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until he, she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to say welcome again to our assembly and to our worship time and to our coming together as a family and to remind each other not only of the biblical truths, but that we live in those biblical truths today, that we are still a part of the story that is the unfolding of the kingdom of God in the history of the world. And uh, we're in this series that we're calling Messiah, and this morning we're going to be looking at the incarnation, and I want us to begin as we usually do with with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful, so thankful, not only that you have given us life, but that in giving us life through forgiveness and, and through salvation and through conversion, you have, have put us on a, on a trajectory to be completely changed. And the product of all of that change to be peace and joy and all of the other uh, emotions that humans feel when, 
we sense that we are utterly blessed by you and in your presence and embraced by you and never abandoned, but always loved. And so this morning, Father, as we, we think about the Incarnation, what we're asking is to understand more deeply. And it is a great mystery to us. We are finite. We confess wholeheartedly and quickly our finite mind and finite capacity to understand this greatest of, of mysteries. And to this end, Father, we ask you to give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in a way, Father, that we are not only helped but changed. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are in this series that we're calling Messiah. And you'll remember at the end of the sermon last week, one of the challenges for our church is between now and the end of the year to cut all of our TV viewing time in half on a daily basis. And to use that time that we freed up because we've cut half of the time that we're usually in front of the television relaxing or watching the news or sports or whatever to use that time that's been freed up to read the gospels to read Matthew Mark Luke and John now before we go a little bit further in this series and before we talk about the incarnation you know one of the things that is uh, maybe for a lot of us and, and maybe for some of us on a regular basis we encounter people that, that really have a lot of doubt about the, the, the nature of the Gospels and about the nature of Scripture in general. And part of that is, you know, we live in a large urban city, the sixth largest city in America, lots of universities. Uh, it's kind of a piece of the Western culture and the way that we think about things spiritual, especially Christianity these days, as, uh, as part of that Western culture. And, and what I want to do this morning is, at the very beginning, to talk about a couple of things that I think will be helpful as we get ready to read these Gospels all the way through the next four months. And the place that I'm going to take you is, I referenced a book last week uh, entitled The Reason for God by uh, a fellow by the name, recently retired from preaching, a fellow by the name of Tim Keller. And in the middle of that book, he has a whole chapter that's dedicated to whether or not you can take the Bible literally or not. And he gives in the middle of that book, I think, three statements that are incredibly helpful as we read the Gospels between now and the end of the year. They're up on the screen. The first one is this. The timing is far too early for the Gospels to be legends. History in the ancient world was an important thing the way that it is today. But for the serious history writer in the ancient world, that the, the Gospels or any piece of history would have been written within what scholars call living memory, which means that it describes history being written within the lifespan of the people who were there firsthand. They witnessed for themselves what it was that was going on. When the Gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, there were people who were still around who were eyewitnesses to the things that are written about in the Gospels. They observed firsthand what was being written about in a sense that you could go to them, they were identified in the Gospels, you could go to them and they could tell you the truth about that event. In that way, these people that are mentioned served like footnotes that we would find on a written document today. And so an example of that would be Mark chapter 15, verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Why would Mark mention Alexander and Rufus? The reason is that they were still alive, and you could go to them to corroborate the things that Mark was writing about, about the life of Jesus. 
the people that are mentioned like this throughout the Gospels and throughout the letters that Paul wrote and, and, and other places, these people served as footnotes where you could go up to them and say, hey, listen, this was written. Is this story true? And they would corroborate or, or not if it was false. So the timing is far too early for the Gospels to be legends. Number two, the content is far too counterproductive for the Gospels to be legends. I mean, think about legends. Legends are always about a heroic figure. They're, they're written in such a way that you see the virtue, you see the greatness, you see the strength, you see the endeavors, you see the events surrounding this, this, this hero's life, and you see just how great they are and high above us and lifted up above us they are as, as a human being. Now, if that's true, why would the gospel writers make up the story uh, of the crucifixion if it wasn't true? The people in the first century that read the Gospels for the first time and they encountered at the end of the story the crucifixion, they would immediately assume that the guy that was being crucified, Jesus in this case, was a criminal. Who is it that preached the very first sermon on the day of Pentecost? Who was it? Peter, all together now. Peter, right? If Peter is the guy that preaches the first sermon, why, and, 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 it's, and it's legend, and it's, it's about making Peter great, then why are the denials of Jesus by Peter in the Gospels, when P, written when Peter is still alive, unless Peter said, you know what, it really happened. To my everlasting shame, I'm going to remember the fact that when I had a chance to stand up for Jesus, I didn't, and I denied him. And it broke my heart, and I remembered it for the rest of my life. And not only was he there to corroborate that story, but even authorized it and said, yeah, you need to tell this story. And then finally, the literary form is too detailed to be legend. Modern fiction, and a lot of us are readers, and we read, you know, some of us read um, a, a book a week, some a book a month, uh, some of us even try to read a book a day. Modern fiction is realistic, and you know, it, it just reads like eyewitness account. And that's why so many times people in our culture, people that, uh, that are, are educated, even as educated as they are, they have a hard time discerning between fact and fiction, fiction and fact. There are a lot of examples in, in, uh, uh, in, in the literary world where something was written as a fiction, but it seemed so factual that people couldn't tell the difference. Now to this, I want to read you a quote from, uh, from Keller he says, this genre of fiction, however, only developed within the last 300 years. He's talking about the highly uh, realistic, factual-sounding kind of, of fiction. In ancient times, romances, epics, or legends were high and remote. Details were spare and only included if they promoted character development or drove the plot. That is why if you're reading Beowulf or the Iliad, you don't see characters noticing the rain or falling asleep with a sigh end of quote. So you have in John chapter 8, as an example, Jesus writing on the ground when that woman who is caught in adultery is brought before him by all those religious people that are ready to accuse him and stone her. And John says that Jesus was stooped down and he was writing in the sand and, and, and we're never told what it was he was writing. We're not even told why he was writing in the sand. Why that detail is there except that someone was there who saw it and included the story, that is, that is absolutely something you don't see in ancient fiction or ancient legends. And so the reason for this information, these three points, that, that the timing is far too early for the Gospels to be a legend, the content that you read about in these Gospels is far too counterproductive 
to, to be a, a legend maker. It's got to be true. And then number three, the literary form is too detailed to be legend. The reason I tell you this is because as you're reading these Gospels, I want you to read these and know that everything that you're reading is true. Everything that you're reading in the life of Christ really happened. And it began with a birth, the birth of the Christ. I was recently listening to a guy that was talking about how amazed he was when he saw and witnessed the birth of his own children. And he talked about how incredible women are in the whole birthing process. He said, you know, for, for nine months, a woman has in her body and is sustaining the life in her body of a human being that begins as an embryo and then grows into the size of a human being that once it's born can live in Earth's atmosphere. And he said, and one of the amazing things is that this human being is growing inside of them and that they can somehow deliver this human being through their body into the world as we experience it. And not only that, with their body, they can feed and they can sustain that baby with, with food. It's a wow moment. I remember the birth of, of my two kiddos, um, you know, getting on some decades now as, as they're getting older and older. But each one, even though it, it's now you know, a couple of decades away, each one of those, those births, for me, was an indescribable and a singular moment of, wow. Jessica was born into the world at Grossmont Hospital in La Mesa, California. And the first time I laid eyes on her as, as she was being delivered, I just thought to myself, absolutely, wow. The first time that I saw Jordan being born at the Clinica Dyer in Brasilia, Brazil, when we were missionaries there, was a wow moment. A wow moment is a moment in which your soul speaks because your head, your mind is so stunned that it's become speechless. The first time that I ever saw Buddy Rich play the drums on television was a wow moment. The first time I heard the Beatles or Otis Redding, or any other you know, uh, singer that I listen to, even to this day, it was a wow moment. The first time that I had a Bible study with somebody, years ago, years and years and years ago, and at the end of that study, they said, I want you to know that I believe that this is true, and I'm ready to give my life to Jesus, to become a son of God, to be baptized, and to begin my life as a disciple. You know what that was? That was a wow moment. I remember the first time that Ellen walked into the apartment after we got married, the apartment we were going to live in, the one that I had been living in, and the one that I had self-decorated. And she said, wow! And not in a good way. I sometimes wonder, with all the stuff that happens at the end of the year, as we get ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus as, as disciples of His if the wow effect has somehow diminished on us. I quoted, uh, I read to you a quote from G.K. Chesterton at the beginning of our assembly this morning. I want to read another one to you that he, that he wrote you know, back in the 19th century uh, on, on Christmas. And he, he gets, he's concerned about some of the same things that we get concerned about. And he said, The great majority of people will go on observing forms that cannot be explained They'll keep Christmas Day with Christmas gifts and Christmas benedictions like Merry Christmas and God bless you and Happy Holidays. They will continue to do it 
and someday suddenly wake up and discover why. I want us to spend some time this morning thinking about it and waking up to how the birth of Jesus is one of the greatest wow moments in the history of the world. And so we'll begin with the definition. The incarnation, when we talk about it biblically, theologically, the incarnation means God the Son became human in the person of Jesus. I'll say that again. The incarnation means God the Son became human in Jesus. This is what John is talking about at the beginning of his gospel when he says, chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's what the word incarnate, incarnation means. It means to become flesh. To become flesh means that you become human. Now, we usually don't ponder in, a, in, in, in great, profound amazement the incarnation Number one, because it's really difficult to understand. It, it, it burns up gray matter trying to think about it. But at the same time, one of the reasons that we don't ponder it is because we as human beings are trying to go the other direction. God descended into human flesh. We keep thinking about how we can become gods. So how is it that a, a, a guy like me who's always trying to make the incarnation, God himself, knowable, how is it that we're supposed to do that? I mean, especially when God is infinite and we are finite minds. The, the world he broke into, the world that he broke into was a world that we can see. The world that we can't see broke into the world we can see through a womb. That, I mean, how do you explain the distance? that he had to travel to become like us. The infinite and eternal God who cannot be known fully by finite minds has to pour himself into human flesh. He has to wrap himself in human flesh. It's like human beings, if we decided that we needed to communicate to H-E-B bags, we poured ourselves into an H-E-B bag in order to communicate other plastic bags. That's just a hint of that great distance. I mean, it is the greatest mystery to understand how Jesus is fully God and fully man. And how are we supposed to connect with the incarnation? I'll give you three ways. There are lots of ways. Let me give you three ways to think about it this morning. The first is this. In the incarnation, the great love of God is revealed. The great love of God is revealed. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is, is, is just sort of in, a, in another place when he starts thinking about the Christ. And he begins just to write down some of the most fantastic, profound, challenging words to help us in our understanding of exactly who the Son of God really is, this Jesus. And in verse 15 he says, The Son, that is Jesus, the one incarnate, is the image of the invisible God. When you see Jesus incarnate, you see invisible things of God. So question, what does the image of the Son of God incarnate make visible about God? Well, think about his very beginning. Jesus is born into an extremely impoverished family. Jesus grew up poor. At his dedication at the temple of his two turtle doves, which was the, the, the offering of the poorest of the poor. When Jesus came into the world, He moved into the poor neighborhood. He moved in 
with the poor people. He was born in a barn. His first crib was a, was a feed trough. That's what a manger is. He lived the first couple of his years as a refugee in a foreign country, Egypt, until King Herod died and he could go back and up into Nazareth in the northern part of the country. As an infant, he was in danger, which forced the family to flee and to live those couple of years down in Egypt as, as refugees. So what does the Incarnation say about God? One of the things that it says is that this world was not made in the beginning to be a world where the strong eat the weak. The world is not supposed to be the strong eating the weak. In the incarnation, the love of God, John 3.16, right? For God so what? Love the world. The love of God, in the incarnation, the love of God and the reality of planet earth meet and love wins. That's why he incarnated in the first place. And this, by the way, as an aside, is why God becomes angry with people who represent him when they treat the poor badly. How followers of Jesus treat and identify with the poor demonstrates their understanding of how God comes to them in their poverty of spirit. That's why we take care of the poor. Is because it is a model of how we see God entering into our life and the greatness and the glory and the richness of heaven coming into our place. But then number two, Christ comes to us not only to reveal the great love of God, but Christ comes to us in our problems and pain. One of the really interesting things about pagan gods was their remarkable cruelty. They were, they were uh, unbelievably capable of inflicting cruel pain and suffering on human beings. When you read the ancient accounts of the, uh, of the pagan gods, their existence was not devoted in the least to making human life bearable. In fact, there, there was a Latin phrase that Randy Thompson shared with me a couple of weeks ago, uh, do ut des, which means I give in order to give, uh, I give in order for you to give, that was coined in, in, in this, this time around uh, the, the, uh, the, the life of Christ, which was a way of reflecting how people gave to the gods. The reason I'm giving to you is in order for you to give to me. Pain and suffering, quite frankly, is a huge problem not only in the world then, but it is a huge problem in the world today. There is so much pain, there is so much suffering in the world that it just doesn't compute. But what I know is that God is not absent from that. Because He entered into our pain with us when he was born into our world. The idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people needs to be erased from our databanks. And the reason is, if that's true, that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, then why did Christ suffer? The best man, the most sensitive man, and because he was the most sensitive man who ever lived, the more the pain when they drove the nails through his wrist. The most sensitive man who ever lived, the more cruel the injustice of the crucifixion. If that's true, why did he suffer? 
But what I know is that God is not absent because he entered into our pain. Isaiah 53 and verse 4 says, He took up our pain and bore our suffering. The verse right before that says that he's a man of sorrows and he's a man that is acquainted with grief. Why? Why did he bear our our iniquity? Why did he suffer? Why was he a man of sorrows? Why did he know grief? It was to end our suffering ultimately. To end our suffering for all time. Ultimately, someday in the future. First Peter, you know, Peter's writing and he's picking up on some of the things that Isaiah has said. In chapter 2 he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely. And because he lived in the flesh, he knew what it meant to be alone so that one day he could end that altogether. He knows what it's like to suffer unjustly and to be slandered and for people to say false things and to lie and to feel ganged up on. He knows what it's like to feel that way. And one of the reasons that he came in the flesh was to end that one day. He knows what it's like to to be exhausted, to be weary. He knows what it's like to, to, to feel that emotionally you've just been absolutely drained and at the end of the day to feel like you don't have another ounce of, of anything to give to anybody. But he experienced that in order to bring his people into his perfect rest. And then the last thing that he came to do was to vanquish our enemies. You know, the funny thing about a a goldfish in a goldfish bowl in an aquarium is that goldfish don't feel wet. They don't. I mean, they don't even see water. They live in an environment that is pure liquid, and they don't see the water, and they don't feel wet. It's the fish's environment. As, as human beings, I mean, how, how uh, accustomed have we come to, to living in a fallen world that at times, at times it seems like we just don't feel wet anymore when it comes to the fallenness around us. But when Jesus of Nazareth was born into the world, he felt wet. He was not blind to the fallenness of the world, And he was not blind to the fact that we human beings, that he was born into our likeness, were surrounded by enemies that we could not defeat. And you know why he did that? Do you know why Jesus came in the flesh? Because as God, he couldn't die. As God, he couldn't die. That's why he had to come in the flesh. That's why he became mortal. The incarnation means that he put on flesh. And do you know what it means for him to put on flesh? It means that when he was born, like we were born into the world, there were nerves in his limbs and on his head and in his body that that grew and were formed and developed in order to feel the rough nails piercing his body. When he was born into our world like us, there was a brow that was prepared for a crown of thorns to pierce and to sit on. His shoulders 
were formed and developed and grew wide in order to carry a cross. A back was broadened for whips. He had a rib cage for a sword to pierce and a cheek for a kiss. One of the great passages in all of Scripture, Paul's writing about the resurrection. He says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our... Say it. Say it with gusto. Lord Jesus Christ. And you know why that's true? Because this verse became a reality. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All I can say and want to say right now about the birth of Jesus is wow. For us, you recognize these people up here on the screen? Probably not the best picture, eh? I mean, she probably walked in right now. She said, out of all the pictures on the internet, you had to pick that one. Well, you know the show Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanne Gaines. They take homes that, that people love but don't want to live in. And they turn them into something absolutely gorgeous. But the beauty does not come until there's some upheaval in that house. And this is what happens with the Incarnation. The incarnation means that everything is disrupted and gets disrupted, including your life, but in the end, God is going to make you a beauty. You are his fixer-upper. When God created everything in Genesis 1 and 2, he looked back and he said, it's tov, it's good. Another way of saying that in modern, everyday English is he created the heavens and the earth and he stood back and he looked at everything that he created and he said what? Wow. And then Genesis 3 rolls around and you know the story there. Adam and Eve decide that they don't want to trust God. They take matters into their own hands. They eat the fruit that is forbidden and everything is just completely different and, and God comes to them and says, you know what has happened? There's a curse on the planet. There's a curse here. Because sin has entered into the world and the serpent is cursed. And there's, there's a, a, a part of the curse that applies to the woman, a part of the curse that applies to men, and there's a part of the curse that applies to the earth. And everything just becomes unwowed. And then one day in a stable in Bethlehem, God himself is born into human flesh and he becomes a human and he lives a life without sin. He overcomes all all temptations. He never gives in. He lives the perfect life without blemish, without sin, in love, in order for Him to voluntarily, in love, give His life in order for us, our debt of crime against a holy God, holy creation, our crimes against each other can be paid for in His flesh. So that one day, God can look at you and say, the wow has been restored. This morning, I, I, I want us to sing. We're going to sing Joy to the World. Probably the first time in the history of our church that Joy to the World has been sung as an invitation song. Seems kind of weird, but when you think about it, how great is the incarnation? 
How great is the beauty of the love of God in Christ going through all that he did in order that we might have relationship, that things might be restored through renovation and, and through restoration, that, that things could be restored to where God will say in the midst of his people that it's all good, it's all wow. And if you've never made those steps where you believe that the story is true and you know that your life your life, the one life that you have in this world, the one life that God has given you, needs help. A help that is beyond you. And what you need is love. And what you need is grace. And what you need is power, which He gives through His Holy Spirit. And what, what you need is to repent and to align your life with, with the will of God through repentance and and through baptism and sins being washed away and being part of a family that is forever and ever a wow family during the singing of this next song as we're praising god and thinking about the greatness of the incarnation and it's for us and we connect to it two thousand years later we connect to it personally that it's his story becomes our story his incarnation is 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 a truth and a fact that we cannot live without that while those that need to align themselves with God come down to the front and talk to our shepherds who can share with them even more this teaching, the rest of us will stand and with hearts sounding joy. Re-